You're listening to For Eternity and Until, where together we uncover how to bring heaven to earth in our everyday choices and live the life we were created for. I'm your host, Tori May Hine, and I'm so glad you're here. Let's get this party started. Okay, so I'm not going to lie. It's time for a confession. I just ate more than one, possibly more than three, mini-sized Snickers bars. <laughs> Fun size. Fun size Snicker bars. It happened. I needed, I needed fuel for this episode, okay? It was necessary. And I'm feeling excited. I'm ready to go, especially this week. I don't know how you are, but I've felt stressed and a little emotional we're right in the middle of a huge election as I record this podcast, and we're seeing division left and right, no pun intended, but it's true. We're seeing division in the church. We're seeing division in our homes, and it's breeding a lot of anxiety and fear, and we're holding on to hope with every ounce of our strength this week and doing our best to surrender and pray and release expectation and embrace what's ahead. And I don't care what your political perspective is, we're all in this uh, in-between place this week. And so I'm really expectant to dive into God's word because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's word is true. And there's always truth that we can encounter in any given moment, whatever season and circumstance is happening, that will empower us to actually live out this calling that God has given to us as believers to embody him and represent him and carry him forward into the world around us. Truly, that's what has stood out to me more than anything over the course of the last couple of stressful weeks around this election is that what our nation, what our world, what our hearts are craving can't be found by any human construction. It's found in Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, put on flesh, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, spent three days in the grave rose up on the third day to conquer sin and death. And then he gave us his spirit so that we could carry that message forward. And he's making all things new. We are in the already and the not yet, but we are living and working from a place of victory, not for it, friends. We can claim our rightful place, that the victory has already been won in Christ. And so, gosh, no election results are going to change that. No crazy year that 2020 has brought to us can change that. We serve a God of impossible, miraculous, I don't know, impossible and miraculous. (laughs) We serve a miraculously powerful God who is able to do anything. He's able to do anything. Can we trust him with that? Can we offer our lives to him and trust that every detail, no matter how uncertain and no matter how scary, we can trust him and we know that he's going to be leading the way. All right. That's my little spiel. 
Before we dive in, we are diving into chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. I'm really excited. Grab your Bible, grab your journal, or hold on to your steering wheel of your car real tightly and listen intently. And let's dive into chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Or grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake out of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Verse 23, all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. 
for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in anything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so this chapter is concluding a three-chapter response that Paul gives to answering the question that the Corinthian church uh, asked Paul, which was, should we or should we not be eating food sacrificed to idols? He's covered a lot of ground and given a lot of angles to different perspectives in answering this question. It wasn't just simply, do not eat this, black and white. It was, you're called to represent Christ's character. And at the end of the day, loving other people is more important than your rights. It's more important than your pleasure. And so we can do lots of things without a conscience working against us. And we can fill in the blank with a lot of different things for us relative to our day and age today. Right now, we're not worried about is the meat at the grocery store up the street sacrificed to idols or not? And does God think that I'm sinning by eating this cheeseburger right now? (laughs) But there's lots of things in our life that kind of fall into this gray area. And we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks Now, Paul says something very interesting at the end of chapter 9. He starts talking about athletes and how they run with endurance and run to win the race, not just to not lose the race, but to win it. And they do it for an imperishable crown, but we've been given an imperishable crown. And so Paul says at the end of chapter nine, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. And this conversation around disqualification has nothing to do with salvation, but it does have everything to do with how we represent Christ. And so the way that we live can disqualify us in the eyes of the people around us. And we want to protect the evidence of God's approval in our life by the way that we live. Now, we are not called to please people. God has not given us a calling of pleasing people. I mean, if you've been around for a hot minute and you've lived in the people-pleasing realm, it probably hasn't worked out very well for you, right? Inevitably, we're always going to displease somebody. We're not called to please people. We're called to love people. And there's a big difference between the two of them. And when we're walking into each circumstance, very aware of the stories and the limitations and the maturity of the group that we are existing in, it's going to change the way that we behave. It's going to require sometimes for us to lay down rights that are rightfully ours to have in order to represent Christ in a way that is easy for the person or people group that we're trying to reach to understand. 
And I mean, Paul really beautifully embodied this and talked about that in previous chapters where he's like, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. Now, he's saying this word disqualification as a warning. And that's really what he's hinging off of at the very first part of this chapter in chapter 10 when he starts talking about the Israelites. It's a warning against idolatry. And he is like, I don't want you to be unaware of the fact that our brothers and our fathers that were all under the cloud, under the very physical cloud of the presence of God in the desert, in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, they passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They physically saw the presence of God in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. They drank from the spiritual rock, which was the rock of Christ. But nevertheless, Most of them, God was not pleased with them, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. It's estimated that there were over 3 million Israelites that were rescued out of slavery in Egypt by Moses. And of those 3 million Israelites, only two of them entered the promised land. And those two people were Caleb and Joshua. I don't know if you remember this story in the Old Testament, but right after walking through the sea, getting the Ten Commandments, God leads them into the promised land and tells them to take it. It's their promised land. And they send spies in to go and scout out the country and they find giants. And the group of spies come back and the only two that said, we can conquer this land, this is given to us by God, were the two men, Caleb and Joshua. But because of the disobedience and the fear of the Israelites, they ended up spending another 40 years wandering around in the desert. And during that time, guess what? The other, you know, (laughs) 2.998 million Israelites were disqualified. And only two of them entered into the promised land. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho is like, you know, chapters later. The Joshua leads the army into Jericho. They march around the walls. The walls come down. They finally enter into their promised land, right? So he's like, do not forget the fact that all these people encountered the presence of God, experienced these amazing things, and yet they were disqualified. And he says in verse 6, Now, these things took place as an example to us that we may not desire evil as they did. Take heed to the word of God. Pay attention to the history that has already happened before us so that we do not repeat the bad behavior that we've fallen prey to in the past. Gosh, can you imagine what our country, what our societies worldwide would look like if we really took this seriously. And the Israelites, when they were attentive to this, they were attentive to teaching the word of God, there was an awareness of the history that their ancestors uh, lived and the lessons that were learned through their stories so they were less um, likely to repeat them. And he's saying This is important for us to remember so that we don't desire the evil the same way that they did. Do not be idolaters as some 
some of them were. Remember when um, Moses came off the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron, who was his spokesperson, his brother in the process of um, saving these Israelites from Egypt, he took all of the you know fine jewelry from all of the uh, all of the Israelites and threw it into the fire, and they created this calf. And when Moses came off the mountain, he's like what is this calf? Why are you guys all worshiping this calf? I've been up on the mountain experiencing the presence of God and receiving the commandments of God. And Aaron's like, well, I mean, like we threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. So we just started worshiping it. (laughs) You know, it sounds so stupid, but gosh, what are some of the things in our life that we are idolizing stupidly in our lives above God? They were idolaters And people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And verse 8 says that we can't indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, where 23,000 of them fell in a day. So verse 8 in 1 Corinthians is referencing a story in Numbers 25, where the Israelites were worshiping the idol Baal and committing sexual immorality. And there was a plague that broke out across the land and over 24,000 people died as a result. You can go and read this story on your own time. But basically, this was an outpouring of the judgment of God on this rebellious group of people in Numbers chapter 25. And Paul is using the Israelites as an example for us to heed the the. Corinthian people were behaving the same way that the Israelites were behaving in Numbers chapter 25. And he's like, take heed to the word of God, because look at what happened to this people group when they rebelled against God and know that our God is a God of justice. Should we provoke him to jealousy? He says later in this chapter, the answer is obviously no. Now, does that mean that plagues and disease are always the result of the judgment of God? Not always. Um, You know, plague and disease comes, though, always as a result of sin. It's the evidence of a breaking down of the perfection that God had originally designed us for as human beings. And so it's the result of sin. Is it the direct judgment of God? Not always. Sometimes when you read in scripture, it is, and then other times it's not. And so we aren't called to necessarily make that judgment, From, in my opinion, as believers. But sin and disease is always the result of sin. Whether God uses it to bring about correction and judgment and turn them back toward God, God's heart is always for repentance and restoration. That's why he sent Jesus. It's always seen every everything that you read in the Old Testament, the New Testament, it doesn't matter where you're reading in the Bible. I always try to read every single story through the lens of what God did through the story of Jesus. You see the character and the heart of God best through the gospel. And the gospel's interwoven through every single line of every part of the Bible. And when you're, you're, when you're reading a specific story that kind of sounds weird and off, and you're like, wow, 24,000 people die as a result of these actions, and isn't God supposed to be a God of love? Remember that he is. Remember that he sent his son to the world, not to condemn the world, but to free the world 
through him to set them free. And so when we're considering Jesus and seeing Jesus as the lens through which we look at every other aspect and story in the Bible, the character of God shines through. Moving on, verse 9 says that we must not put God to the test as some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents or grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is also referencing a story in Numbers 21, verse 5, where the Israelites spoke out against God and then God sent venomous snakes among them. Man, uh, I would not like that. <laughs> like, okay, Lord, I'm taking heed. I will not speak against you simply because I definitely don't want any venomous snakes anywhere around my body. Please keep them very far away. <laughs> but needless to say, Paul's bringing up these examples um, of Israelite history to remind them that they were not above the judgment of God. Now, verse 11 says, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, here's the point. You might have really awesome natural abilities. You might have lots of charisma and personal charm and education. But if as a child of God, you lose the very thing that separates you apart from the rest of the world. You lose your integrity before God and you break relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, Then what do you really have left? You've got nothing left that can bring your soul nearer to Jesus. Now, this is a work of Christ. Even the fact that we can believe in God is a gift from him, but we cannot lose his presence or forfeit it for something superficial. God is near. And he will be until he takes us to heaven. But we might stumble and slip in and out of our Christian life. And in the process of doing so, we'll lose power and we'll lose the presence of God whenever we're choosing an idol again. Now, this doesn't mean that God cannot restore us. Obviously, he is the great restorer. Mercies are new every morning. But As ambassadors for Christ, as the body of Christ, we have an amazing privilege of representing God, but that also comes with great responsibility. And I just want to say that in a week like this week, it's easy to turn back to your vices. It's easy to turn back to your Snickers bars, I'm speaking to myself here, Um, or your habits that um, help you or have helped in the past to keep you locked in sin and silent and isolated in your feelings. And God's inviting you into intimacy. In intimacy, not just with him, but also within the church. I encourage you that if over the course of the last couple weeks, you felt overwhelmed and you've begun to see those old habits change and history is repeating itself in your life, break that cycle. Just like it says here in this passage, to flee from temptation, flee from temptation, take heed. This isn't just a word for the Corinthians thousands of years ago. This is a word for us. So when it says in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, that means that that's a word for you and it's a word for me. No one is above this. There's temptation all around us that's calling out to us from left and right, and it's calling us down this rabbit rabbit hole and into a deep 
dark place where the presence of God can't be found. We don't want to turn back to things that won't actually give us freedom. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus and allow him to author and perfect our faith. So he says in verse 13, no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, which is should be a comforting thing for us because it means that you're not unique in your struggle. We're all struggling. We're all being tempted. We're all falling short of the glory of God. Mercies are new for us every single morning. So we don't have to isolate ourselves going, oh, I'm such a bad person. What was me? Oh, my gosh, I really suck at being a Christian. This really sucks. No, it's God's given us victory and we're living in the already and not yet. And God is perfecting us. And it's going to be a process of failure and restoration, sometimes on a daily moment by moment, minute by minute basis. But no temptation in our lives has overtaken us that is not common. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Now, remember what it says in James. God does not tempt us with evil. He cannot tempt with evil. Um, so he does not do that. That's not a function of the Holy Spirit. He's not presenting things in your path and being like, yeah, prove to me that you're such an amazing Christian. No. But he's always providing the escape route from the temptation. Remember, Jesus actually walked in full human form. He endured every temptation that we could endure in our lives. So he has great compassion. Remember where Jesus is seated, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, it says in Hebrews, and that his function and his his role before the Father is to intercede on our behalf. I think a powerful question that we can ask ourselves as we're sitting in prayer is, Jesus, what are you interceding on my behalf today? Because whatever you're praying for, I want to pray for over my life. And God will reveal it to you. Now, he is there interceding on our behalf as our great high priest who has an immense amount of mercy and compassion on us because he's experienced everything that we have. But when we face temptation, we're always given an escape route from it. So as you're walking through the next day, today, after you listen to this podcast, and you are tempted to text that person, or you're tempted to go back and open up that app on your phone, or pull up an inappropriate site on your on your computer, or um, indulge in too much food, or drink too much, or go back to a you know drug of choice. You know, you name it. You know the things in your life that keep you bound as a slave to sin. Don't return to those things. Look for the escape route that God has provided for you. And it says here that God is faithful. Praise God that he is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is a faithful God that does not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. So when people say, oh, you know, God does not give you too much that you like can't handle is not a biblical verse that's not um, in the Bible. God absolutely will put you in situations that are too big for you. You're going to need the presence of the Holy Spirit because you are not enough. But what the Bible does say is that God will not allow you to be tempted 
beyond your ability to resist that temptation. That is true and that is biblical and that's what we're reading here in scripture right now. And praise God, this is a promise for us. So the next time that you're stuck in an impossible situation that you feel like you have no way out of, Consider this promise. God has given you an escape from this temptation. Find it. And then it says in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee. And this is like the third or fourth time that he's said this in 1 Corinthians, if you remember in previous podcasts when we've read it before. Flee from sexual immorality. Run for your life. This time he's saying flee from idolatry. Idolatry matters to God. One of the very first commandments is do not worship idols. You shall not have any other gods before me. Is there anything in your life that holds precedence, that holds authority over Jesus himself? If it's the case, and if you're putting more attention in any other place in your life, even with your children or your marriage, we can use these things as idols in our life. We could pray for a husband and pray for a family and then God gives it to us and then we use it as an excuse to, you know, not show up to church and (laughs) stop reading our Bible and you fill in the blank. It's nothing should be above my desire for God himself. Flee from idolatry. And he says in verse 15, I speak as to the sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Judge for yourselves what I say. And he starts talking about the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same bread. God always meets man on the level of his desire. When we hunger and we thirst after righteousness, we're going to be filled by righteousness. Now, if we hunger and we thirst for sin and selfish desire, we're going to be filled with sin and selfish desire. Whatever we desire, God meets us there and gives us the desires of our heart, which is an actually terrifying reality. But he changes our palate, (laughs) The presence of the Holy Spirit should change the palate for the things that you desire. The very presence, the very tasting of the very the presence of God and an encounter with God changes everything. So when Jesus met the woman at the well and told her, I will give you living water, it was before any other thing was shared. He didn't share that he was the Messiah with her yet. He didn't reveal that he already knew her story. He met this woman by satiating the desire for water, a thirst in her soul. When the prodigal son was sitting in the dirt and eating the pig food, he looked at it and listened to the grumbling of his stomach and went, I got to go back to my father's house. There's something better for me there. It was his hunger that led him back to the father. It was the thirst that brought the woman to the well. And then God meets them there in this in these moments of restoration, like, I will be the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You partake in me, and then you will never be hungry. I am the ever-living water. You could take a drink of me, and you're never going to thirst again. Now, it's not speaking physically about the bread and the wine, necessarily, or his like physical body, drink my blood and eat my flesh. That's weird. We don't need to get weird, okay, Christians out there. (laughs) 
is obviously symbolic, but of a, of a very true and real spiritual reality that Christ, if we are in Christ and we partake at the Lord's table, then we should be satisfied fully in him. So he says um, that there is one bread and we who are many are now one body because we've all partaken in one bread. We've all been satisfied by the same God. Jesus paid the price for all of us. So he said in verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the altar? So in the Old uh, Old Testament, when they were um, laying burnt sacrifices on the altar, he's spoken about this in previous chapters, that um, the priests would actually eat the animals that were sacrificed to the Lord. That was part of their payment. So he's like considering this. Verse 19, what do I imply then? Am I implying that food that's offered to idols is anything or an idol is anything? No, that's not the point that he's making here. What he says is, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, they are offering it to the, an authority that is not God, and they're participating in that authority. And Paul is telling these people, I definitely don't want you to be a participant with demons. <laughs> you cannot be full and satiate your hunger in the presence of God at the Lord's table and then also sit at the table of demons to satisfy your hunger there. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Remember the story of the Israelites who fell into the judgment of God because of their idolatry and their sexual immorality and their selfish ambition and their sin. Are we going to provoke the Lord to jealousy in the same way? Are we stronger than he? The answer is no. Can you fester in your addiction to pornography and also come to church and lay your heart open without um, any hesitation in the spirit before God? No. Can you have this addiction or this idolatrous relationship or this sinful act that the Holy Spirit has revealed over and over and over again? Lay it down at my feet. Lay it down at my feet. Surrender it and fully be completely given over to God as the Lord and the Savior. We all want Jesus to be our Savior. Everybody wants him to be our Savior, but not very many of us actually want him to be our Lord. Lord means he calls the shots. Lord means he gets to dictate what your sex life looks like. He gets to dictate what you do and you do not do according to his word, right? Our lives are then laid as an, a living sacrifice before God when we come into full surrender. And the surrender is not one of captivity. It's actually one of freedom because we're living in the way that God has designed for us to live. I'm going to leave my insecurity at the door and my fear and my shame and my addiction. And I'm going to come to the foot of the cross and be received into the arms of love of my savior who doesn't come with condemnation, but he came offering himself as the sacrifice so that I could have freedom. So Considering all these things, he's going to wrap up this whole conversation about eating food sacrificed to idols in verse 23. He says, do everything to the glory of God. So he's summarizing things that he's already said before in previous chapters. He's like, okay, let's summarize. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So it means you can do whatever you want. Should you do everything that you want to do? No. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, 
but the good of his neighbor. Again, this is not people pleasing, it's people loving. So practically speaking to their circumstance in verse 25, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, just eat whatever's on the table. You don't have to ask about it. You don't have to raise up a conscience and make it a thing. And it's rude and it's weird. Just go and eat the dinner. But if you go to their house, verse 28, and they say to you, this food has been sacrificed to idols. (laughs) Well, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of their conscience. Because why do you think that they're going to lay food out on the table and intentionally tell you, we sacrificed this food to the idols? You're going to look at them and be like, okay, well, then I don't want to participate in that because I am full, fully satisfied by the Lord's table. I've eaten the bread. I've drank the cup of the Lord. I'm sat, I've hungered and thirst after righteousness and I was filled with righteousness. Sorry, can't eat that because I'm already filled to the brim with what God has given to me. I'm not going to participate in the devil's, you know, sacrifice and also in the Lord's um, table. Now he's saying, I don't mean that by saying no, he says in verse 29, I don't mean that you're conscious about your conscience, but his. So what he's saying is, remember, I've already told you, idols don't hold any authority. It doesn't really matter whether or not you eat the food. That's not going to actually change your spiritual existence here. It's not about your conscience. And he says in verse 30, for if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So he's saying someone else's conscience can't dictate your freedom. But when we're representing Christ in a circumstance and they're looking to us as a, you know, they're laying this food sacrifice to idols on the table and saying, what are you going to do about it? Of course, if we're asked to make the choice, then we're going to choose to represent Christ with our actions. And we're not doing it because the meat means anything. We're doing it because the action will solidify who we're devoted to and where authority lies in our lives with this relationship with this individual. So it says in verse 31, so whatever you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am in Christ. Here's a couple questions that we always want to ask ourselves in any of these gray area situations. Is this a stumbling block for others? The second question is, can I ask God's blessing if I partake in this thing or if I do this thing? And then the third question is, can I do this for God's glory? And you're going to need to evaluate these questions for yourself and search, search scripture, pray, talk about it with the people in your community that you're in church with and consider these things. But remember, you're not living for your own self and your own rights, you're called to lay your rights down for the sake of loving others well. So if it is a stumbling block for others, well, then you might have to make a decision to not participate in something that you are free to do, but would not be beneficial or helpful for you to do in a circumstance. If you can't ask God's blessing over this thing that you're doing, and you know that you're acting in full 
rebellion against God or rebellion against something that the Holy Spirit has convicted you personally about, well, then you should not participate in that thing. Lay it down. Confess it to a friend. James says that if we confess our sin with one another and pray with one another that we're, we will be healed. If you need healing in your life, then, it, then confession might need to happen first. And then the third question is, can I do this for God's glory? And if the answer is no, and if you're really looking to glorify yourself, and if your, amb- your selfish ambition is getting in the way, then choose, make a decision. What do I need to do in this specific circumstance in order to glorify God well? Because that's the call of our life. All right. I love you guys. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk soon. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you have a second, leave a review or post a comment here on the podcast page. It helps this podcast to be seen by other people so we can spread this message far and wide. I cannot wait until next week and I'll talk to you soon.